It's fitting that we, uh, that we would take up this text about prayer today on Mother's Day. I don't know if you were as lucky as I am, and I know, I know Mother's Day is complicated. Uh, between the complications of being a mom and the complications of having moms that are, some are perfect and some are less than perfect. Actually, none of them are perfect, right? I mean, mine alone might be close to perfect, but... Um, but it's a, it's, there's a lot of stuff that comes in, and yet if you had the, the blessing of being raised by a praying mom, you know the blessing that that is. Many of my childhood memories are of mom praying. My, my memories of mom, when I think about mom growing up, it was, it was her praying early in the morning as it was she and dad both sitting on my bed praying at bedtime. What a gift. And, uh, and mom could pray. We, uh, I think I've told you this before, and she went to my sister's house in Oregon today, so she's fair game. But, um, uh, you know, my, when we're sitting around the table, it was always a little, like when, when, it, came, when it was mom's night to pray, you, you were worried you were never going to eat. You know what I mean? Like, and here's how, started, here's how you knew you were in trouble. And my mom was a praying person. She still is. And my mom's the kind of, I'm a little more emotionally stifled. My mom starts crying very easily in prayer. You know what I mean? And I'm like sitting there going, what are we supposed to be feeling? I don't, I'm trying really hard to feel whatever. She just has this wonderful, sweet heart and loves the Lord. It's such a gift. And, and so we'd be sitting around the table and we'd all hold hands. And if mom started praying, going like this, you knew it was like over. That was going to be, you were never going to eat. It was, she had made this meal. Doesn't she want you to eat it? <laughs> Prayer. Prayer is something the disciples went to Jesus and said, hey, would you teach us how to do it? Many of us learned what we know about prayer from our moms. In fact, I remember being in Sunday school. My mom prayed in front of me a lot, prayed with me, you know. And uh, so I remember being in Sunday school, and one of the first times I ever felt like a hypocrite was um, I was maybe seven or eight years old in a Sunday school class, and I had prayed, and apparently I had prayed in a way that seemed impressive. But, uh, the, and the Sunday school teacher said, Grant, you're my little prayer warrior. And in my head, I was like, I'm just copying what my mom says. Like, I'm not anybody's prayer warrior. This was the only time this month I prayed because you made me. You know what I mean? Like, I'm glad you think I have a good prayer life, but I'm seven. It's like baseball and baseball and basketball and baseball. And that's kind of all that's going through my brain. Um, and, and I think that that's something that we can kind of carry into adulthood, that it is not that difficult to act like a person who has a prayer life. It is much more complicated, and I don't know if difficult's the word, because there's nothing hard about it, but it takes a certain level of discipline to actually be a person that has a vibrant prayer life. So let me ask you today, as we get going in Luke 11, as, our, as we continue to journey through Luke, how is your prayer life? And I wonder if I could ask you an even more foundational question. What is your prayer life? And I think part of the difficulty of having a vibrant prayer life is that we might misunderstand what prayer is intended to be. It's easy to be discouraged in prayer. It's easy to be disillusioned in prayer. It's easy to be confused. Anybody else, the ADD kicks in and you go, uh, dear God, thank you're powerful. Thank you. You're up there with the angels. I wonder if the angels won How's Mike Trout's 
ankle. Like, am I the only one? I'm the only one that does that? Oh, well, apparently you're all spiritual. That's great. No, but, but just the discipline of prayer is so foundational to the Christian life, and it's something that it takes, it takes learning. It takes something, it's something that, that we must learn. And so let's start by thinking about what is your prayer life? Why do we do this? What's the point of prayer? What is effective prayer? And I wonder if we could just get going today by this, to think, what if we just understood prayer in its most basic form to be communicating with God? And if we put it in that category, that category of we all know that the core of any relationship is communication. If you want to feel close to somebody, you're going to have to learn to communicate with them. And that might not be an entirely true statement. The key to any good relationship is good communication. You might have a friendship, a marriage, a partnership at work where there is all kinds of communication. Oh, there's verbiage going back and forth like crazy. But instead of building into friendship and love, it's tearing that down. The key to any relationship is learning to communicate well. And I wonder if we just thought about prayer less in terms of what can I get out of it and when is it effective and when is it not. Instead, look at this as this is the means, and this just blows me away, for us to have a loving relationship with the king of the universe. Like you can learn to communicate in such a way where you have a growing relationship with divinity himself. This is something I'm fond of saying in all kinds of relational communication, but I think um, that if we, if we understand good communication to be the foundation of, of any kind of relationship, there, there are kind of two categories. There's two ways you can view communication. And I think this is true with your best friend or your spouse or your boss or, or your students or whoever it might be. The one way we can view communication is communication is the tool I use to get what I want. Communication is how I lovingly manipulate the people around me, right? Well, I told them, right? Um, and there's a lot of frustration in viewing communication that way, that what what we sit down and as we're talking, we're trying to like bend each other's will to ours. And there's a lot of frustration in viewing communication with God that way too. That we would say, hey, Bible, could you teach me how to bend God's will to mine? There's a lot of frustration there. If you've been disillusioned in prayer, I wonder if that had something to do with it. But another way we could view communication in general and prayer specifically, and the more intense, more important the relationship, the more I think this is true. I think this is true about the guy you say hi to on, on the, the street walking down the road. I think it's vital with, with friends and family. I think it's imperative as you have a relationship with God and that it's this communication is all about knowing each other better. That what if you viewed the opportunity you had to communicate with your friends, with your coworkers, with your spouse, with your kids, with your parents, was here is the point of communicating. Here is why we talk to each other so we could actually know each other better. It's a mistake I see in friendships and in marriage and, in, and with kids and parents. It's, it's, it's this understanding that part of maturing is no longer treating other people like they are a source of provision, but rather they are humans to get to know and love. 
It's Mother's Day, so let's talk about that. Do you remember that shift in your life? Where as a toddler, mom was just the source. All of com your communication was goldfish. And I got to go potty. And play now and no sleep, right? And this, like, this was 100% of your communication was, what do I got to say to this woman to get what I want? And you learned magic words. If I say goldfish, please, there's a... So no, I'm, I'm not joking. So you lovingly learn to manipulate those you love, right? Like, oh, if you say please, then mom's more likely to bend her will to yours. But do you remember when all of a sudden it dawned on you, you're like, I think mom's a person. I think she has hopes and dreams. She probably gets sad about things, right? I don't know when it happened to you. Some of you 12, 13, some of you 35, 36. But where you start looking at mom and go, I don't think she's just a source of giving me things. Rather, I think she is someone I could build a depth of friendship with, a depth of relationship, and probably that depth of relationship will be more life-giving, more fun, and end up providing for me much more than just learning to manipulate her. Now, I wonder if that's apparently true. I won't say obviously true, but it's apparently true. With a core foundational relationship like a mom, how much more is that true with our Heavenly Father? You know, I, I do, when I think of talking with my mom, uh, my mom's a wonderful provider. You know, she was, she was all about, you know, after-school snacks and playing catch in the front yard and stuff. But, but when I think about it, I think about it, and mom and I both tell this story all the time that when we think about me growing up, mom and I are both kind of, we're not just talkers, we're ramblers. Have you noticed? Yeah. Um, we, you know, it's not just, there's no concise thought with me and mom. The whole world is like, a, you've seen like mind maps, like this leads to this, leads to this, leads to this, leads to this. And so that's, that's the way I got that. I come by that very naturally. Um, and so if you ever need to just tell me, hey, back to, hey, buddy, back to the center of the night. What were we doing here? Uh, then I understand. That, that's, a, that's a weakness of mine. But so mom and I would get in the car, and everywhere you go in Southern California is a freeway. We would get in the car to go two off-ramps down, start a conversation, and eight off-ramps down would realize that we're nowhere near where we wanted to go. And probably we, met, we were late to some things because of that. And probably I'm, I missed some start times of clarinet lessons or whatever. Praise the Lord. But, um, <laughs> but it was those relational times, not accomplishing anything, but just talking that built the friendship, the warmth, the depth. It wasn't like, mom, you missed that off ramp. <laughs> I didn't know. But it was time in depth of relationship. And I wonder if you could stop with the idea of God as vending machine. And I said all the things. Why am I not? Why is this divine vending machine not spitting out the blessings that Kanye keeps rapping about? And instead, ye, sorry, um, and, in, and instead, say, man, as I bow my knee before the king of the universe, I could develop a relationship. I could actually know him. Let's miss some off-ramps. Let's have depth of relationship 
with the king of the universe. So as we, look, as we begin to look at communication as primarily relational, not functional, that's the maybe slightly dorkier way to say that. Do you understand? If we look at communication and prayer specifically as primary relational, not functional, it's not about what I'm getting. It's about who I'm loving. It's about growing more in love with the one I love. It's about knowing the one I love better instead of how can I get what I want out of this person or how can I get what I want out of God. When we especially apply that to our relationship with God, prayer is less about getting what I want and more about really, really knowing God. And I guess part of, the, part of the, the thing we have to talk about before we open up Luke together is do you want that? Like how does depth of relationship with God sound? If you are someone who goes, depth of the relationship of God is fine, but, he, but the blessings better come too. And I think you're never going to get there. I think you have to hit reverse or at least throw it in neutral. And say, no, man, the big blessing is that you could have a relationship that lasts for all time and eternity future with the king of the universe. So in Luke 11, Jesus' disciples come to him and they say, teach us to pray. You know, we'll, we'll pick up with, with, that, with that statement, teach us to pray, but, but as we're looking at Jesus' disciple people, remember the section we're in is Jesus discipling his followers as he has set his face to Jerusalem so that he might go and, and bear the sins of the world on the cross. And you'll see that they come to this question, Lord, teach us to pray, as they have been watching him pray. Jesus was in a certain place. He had gone to a special place. He had prayed. And as he comes back in prayer, they say, man, teach us that. And if we are going to teach anybody anything, it's not only going to be instruction, it's always going to be example. Jesus is the example of prayer. Now, as they say, teach us to pray, um, you will, you know, this is one of the questions on Wednesday, come on Wednesday, we'll have a good conversation about it. But I have a hunch that these guys have prayed before. I have a hunch that as they say, teach us to pray, growing up as faithful Jewish men, I think they probably had said the Shema once or twice. I bet you they had prayed regularly. And you think this was the first time in their following Jesus that they had prayed? I bet you prayer was a very regular part of their life. So what are they doing here? Well, here's what they're doing is that it was a common thing for rabbis to teach their disciples a particular prayer. What is our prayer? I don't know how you might think about this. You might, you might think of it like a mission statement, like all churches who honor Jesus everywhere. We're all one, we're all together. So, but we go, as we gather at Lighthouse, what's the tip of the sword for us? What, how do we articulate it? We'll be loved and worship and follow and grow and go. That's like how we articulate this, right? It's kind of like that. It's kind of like a fight song. Anybody still remember their high school fight song? Um, I didn't because I played tennis. Nobody sings the fight song for the tennis team. Do you understand? Not one time did the band ever show up to play us the fight song. But do you remember the fight song? Do you remember your alma mater? It's the thing that identifies you in, in this group, in this, um, in, in this uh, rabbinic school. So as they come and say, teach us to pray, it's kind of like they're saying, would you teach us our national anthem? If we're building the kingdom of God, what's our song? What's our fight song? What's our alma mater? And then he answers and he says, well, when you pray, 
pray like this, and, and we won't take a lot of time with each of these, but man, let's just marvel in what we have the opportunity to pray. He says, so, so this is primarily, this first part is primarily about corporate prayer, that we would come together and go, Father, you've said Father in prayer your whole life. Have you stopped to think about how crazy that is? That you and I would get to address the king of the universe in a familiar term like Abba, like Dad, like Father. You're more familiar with Matthew's version of the Lord's Prayer that says, Our Father which art in heaven. Matthew is a, a particularly Jewish book, and Our Father in heaven was a very Jewish way of addressing uh, Elohim, of addressing God. And Luke is writing more for a general audience, even a, a Gentile audience. And so, and so he is saying, look, you get to call God dad. This is about identity. We have to decide what makes us us. As a church, as the church, as a family, as a person, where is it I look for my identity? Do we look to the stuff the world looks to? Do we look to how articulate we are and how handsome and beautiful we are and what the bank account says and how many and how much? And do we try to quantify it? Or do we say, this is what defines us. It's our family name, Father. So relational. Nothing defines you more than being a child of God. I'm proud of, of my family name. I'm proud of the name Combs. Uh, you know, I, I know a couple generations back, and they all seem to be relatively, you know, good folk. And I'm proud of my upbringing, and I have four children that I'm passing that name on to, and it's all fine. But a good father and a good mother sit as signposts that say, I don't want Combs to be your primary identity. No, rather, it is God as your father that defines you. Because I'll tell you what, if my kids are defined by, by me and my abilities and my limitations and my lack of wisdom and resources, they are in a world of hurt. They walk around going, what defines me is my father, Grant Combs. Don't tell people that. Rather, what defines you? Are you lovable? Are you worthy of affection? Are you accepted? Just like you are right now? Does somebody care about you? Man, it's a mixed bag when you go anywhere else for identification. But if you say, Father, this is how we identify. There's, of course, a sweetness in that close relationship available to us in calling God our Father. But there's a toughness too. You think about Peter leaving his nets, uh, leaving his father's fishing business to follow Jesus. We must not only identify with God as our Father, but we identify with God alone as our Father, our source. It is not your job, no matter how great you are at it. It is not your family, no matter how cute the kids are. It is not your abilities. It is not how strong you are, how pretty you are, how far you can throw a ball, how much weight you can lift. None of that is what identifies you. What gives you value, what identifies you, is your relationship as a son or daughter of God. So we begin with Father 
and it is realization of all that, that our relationship with God means. It is also a rejection of all other affiliations of identity. Hallowed be your name. This follows. Man, something is holy to you. Something is set apart. Something is the thing that you go, this is the most important thing to me. This is how I identify myself. We get together and we say, Father, hallowed be your name. It is just you. It is just who I am in you. It is just seeing each other in the church as siblings, as brothers and sisters and beloved. This is it. Hallowed be your name. There, the, hallowed just means to make holy. I'm not going to make anything else holy. I'm not going to make the, the things I'm a fan of holy. I'm not going to make the, the, the human institutions I think about, care about, agree with. Those are not going to be holy to me. The only thing that is going to be holy to me is you and your name. Again, this is as much about what we exclude as, as what we're including. To pray, hallowed be your name, then your kingdom come. Man, that's downright rebellious. I love a good punk rock song. This is as punk rock as it gets. To say, your kingdom come. Not any other kingdom. Some kingdoms running around in your head right now that you might be rooting for, pulling for, not those. God, your kingdom come. You are the dad, you are the king. These are the primary relationships. God, you are my father, in you I find identity, and God, you are our king. Your kingdom come. I don't care about any other kingdom in victory. I care about your kingdom coming. It is your rule that we are praying for. It is your justice that we are praying for. And you can't pray for it and then go live something else. It is God's family. It is God's kingdom. Do you see how relational this is? That prayer, even the most foundational prayer, the Lord's prayer, maybe your parents taught you to memorize this at bedtime when you were, when you were a kid. Um, this, this, this first prayer that maybe we all learn is not anything except teaching us to identify with God as our Father and God as our King. And then there's these three petitions. Give us our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and lead us not into t- temptation. Look, you are going to trust something for your daily bread. In fact, we live in a culture that our daily bread's not that stressful. It's the bigger things. How am I going to retire? And what's this? And how, what's the, the, the doctor's going to say in my next appointment? All those things are very stressful. Daily bread, we don't worry about very much. And, and that might be to our discredit. That might be to our harm. Jesus taught us to pray, God, would you provide for me today? You're going to provide, you're going to trust for something for your daily bread. What is it going to be? You're going to trust yourself. You're going to trust somebody else. You're going to trust your abilities or you're going to trust God. And it's daily bread, like man in the desert. You can't keep it. It's just for today. Forgive our sins. Man, forgiveness of sins takes humility. You know why it's hard to pray, uh, God, would you forgive my sins? Because that means you would, how often should we pray this? Jesus said to pray it, how often should we do this? Every day, twice a day, 
whenever, at every meal, right? This is something. And to say, God, would you forgive my sins is an admission that what? You're a sinner. Do you see the humility that is required to follow Jesus? You don't pray your kingdom come and God, I want your name to be the only holy name and your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and then do anything except going, God, I don't live up to that standard. Would you forgive me? It takes humility. In fact, I think that I said last week that maybe we should have included this passage in last week's sermon, that it, it it is the exact opposite of the lawyer uh, that Jesus was in the conversation with um, uh, who was saying, how do I inherit eternal life? Do you remember that, that they have the first part of that conversation and it says the lawyer in order to justify himself. The exact opposite of justifying yourself is admitting your sinfulness and seeking forgiveness. And really, those are the only two attitudes I think we, it's possible for us to bring. We either go, God, they did it to me, and you got to give me like victory over them, and it's not my fault, and I'm the good guy, and I'm the righteous one. You either do that, or you come to him and go, it's your name, you're the dad, you're the king, and I'm not perfect, and I'm seeking forgiveness. You can't do both of those at the same time. And lead us not into temptation. Temptation is, this. there were a variety of words available to Luke. He didn't use a word that was temptation, like temptation to sin. Rather, it was like, would you lead us away from trials? And this, again, is all about, is all about humility. That we would say, God, I want to learn the easy way. Would you please not lead me down the most difficult road so you have to get my attention? You don't have to knock me off my donkey, God. I'm going to get off all on my own, and I'm going to look at you, and I'm going to say, you're the king and you're the dad. Just a couple observations about these three requests, daily bread and forgiveness of sins, and, and lead us not into temptation. I want you to see the time element. Daily bread is the present. God, I'm trusting you for right now. Will you give me my daily bread? And all the commentators say this, this is a, you know, covers my daily needs. God, would you, would you take care of me today? And when you ask God, would you forgive my sins, you're talking about your past. God, would you make sense of my past? I'm trying to figure out the mistakes that I've made in the past. Would you please be the one who takes care of that? And then as you pray, would you lead me not into trials? Would you lead me not into temptation? You're talking about your future. God, would you lead me from here? Relationship with Jesus. Relationship with God, Father and King, for your past and your present and your future. Also, there's one thing in this prayer as we say, God, help me make sense of my past and keep us today and guide me from here on, there's one specific thing for us to do in this prayer. I guess we could extrapolate many things. If, if God's the king, we have to obey him. If he's the father, we have to honor him. We could extrapolate some things. But the one thing that we are expressly promising that we will do in this prayer is to grant forgiveness. Forgive my sins as I forgive other people's sins. 
This is the one specific action that Jesus taught us to promise regularly, every day. And again, this has everything to do with our identity. You have your choice. You can't have both of these. You can only have one or the other. You can live in a world where forgiveness is common. Forgiveness is like air. It happens all the time. That's all that happens. There's no debts ever stored up against you, by you, for you, with you. Pick a preposition. There's no debts. Or you can live in a world where the offending party must pay for every debt that they rack up. Now, what you can't do is say, God, would you forgive me of my sins and make others pay for theirs? You can't say, God, I appreciate the forgiveness of the cross. I appreciate you being willing to put my... And you know, the cross is where our sins are forgiven. But forgiveness is an Old Testament idea that God, the psalmist said that he would put our iniquity as far as the east is from the west. God is a forgiving God and he desires to make sense of all of your mistakes. And he desires to make sense of the mistakes of others too. So you can either be someone who says, I accept forgiveness. I admit my sin and I accept forgiveness. And also I am somebody that grants forgiveness. Or you can be a scorekeeper where you say, every sin against me is a pile of debt. I have accounts for everybody I know. I have accounts for people at work and church and home. I have accounts for people uh, at, uh, that I don't even know that cut me off in traffic. Guy in red Toyota, boom, someday that guy, and we even say it like this, he owes me an apology. Everyone has to pay for the sin they are racking up. And I don't want to make light of the fact that there are some people that have racked up incredible amount of debt in your ledger, that you have been treated badly. They don't deserve forgiveness. But you can live in one world or the other. Jesus taught us to pray. I want to live in the world where your, your forgiveness is available to me and my forgiveness is available to everyone. And on this side of the cross, it's almost, it's almost cheating. It makes so much sense for us to go, look, my sins are there on the cross and so is the guy in the red Toyota that cut me off. And so are those members of my family who have hurt my feelings time and time again. And so are the people who let me down. But God, they're not even a Christian. They don't even trust you. Their sins aren't forgiven. God will deal with them. God has called you to the ministry of reconciliation. He has not called you to the ministry of judgment. He's got that covered. And you know, forgiveness doesn't lack wisdom. It isn't returning over and over to unsafe places or unsafe people. Forgiveness doesn't call evil good or give a pass to sin. It's not that. Forgiveness rather looks at the offender and says, I'm counting on God for my daily bread. I'm counting on God to make sense of my mistakes in the past. I'm counting on God to lead me in the future. So offender, you don't owe me anything despite your sin against me, God's got me. It's our very nature 
as Christians to forgive. It's our creed. This is our way of life. Forgiveness is the way. So prayer is identification. Prayer is how we know who we are and all that. Then two quick stories, and I'll try not to take much of your time. I know the Mother's Day buffet is very important. <laughs> prayer must not only is about identity prayer must be without shame and i'll tell you what i mean by that and i'll try to tell you what i think jesus meant by that um, as jesus continued to teach his disciples how to pray he told a couple of stories and the first one was about a friend who found himself in an embarrassing situation did you hear susan read it to us um, you know you need to know that hospitality in the ancient world was more than just a tradition or, or, or you know, a, an obligation. It was a matter of honor. If you could not provide hospitality for somebody, it was like pox upon you. You know, like it was like, eh, I hear this guy had a visitor late at night, didn't even have bread for him, right? We're not, he's not coming to the potluck. And so it's about two friends. One of them gets unexpected visitors and he's caught unaware and he doesn't have the ability to extend the hospitality that his culture demands of him. And so he knows what to do and he goes to his buddy's house and he beats on the door. And the, and the buddy is like, my kids are all tucked in. That is not, even in our culture, like if you, if you have a dog that barks, have you ever just set the kids down for a nap and then somebody rings the doorbell and you're like, if they make that dog bark, I'm going to go to jail for homicide. Like, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> but it's even more than that. They lived in these, like, kind of two-room places where the whole family would be tucked in in the back and probably the animals brought into the front part. So, I mean, they are locked down. The door is never closed in, in this culture. The door is always open until we are no longer open for business. Don't knock on this door. Close the door. We've got sheep. We've got our cow. We've got whatever going on. We've got all the kids. It's one big bed, family pile. You are going to cause havoc if you make me get three loaves of bread and the guy keeps beating he goes hey you know but i'm i, I need your help and the guy says, get out of here and then it says that the reason the guy opens the door is not out of friendship and love but is about uh and it's not even really persistent some of your bibles might say his persistence rather it is impudence of this friend. Impugns his shamelessness. This guy doesn't know his place. He's knocking on this door like he expects the friend to open it. And impudence doesn't seem like a way that we should address the Lord. Should you be impudent to God? Impudence is mostly a negative word, but it's a positive word if the person you're barging in on doesn't mind you being there. One of my favorite things about the whole Zoom universe in the last couple of years is you see any videos of like either like uh, newscasters or, or like stuff, viral stuff going around of like these impressive businessmen who are in the suit and then in the middle of the meeting just a toddler walks in just in the background and the toddler is he doesn't know his place what's he doing there but he knows that he's always welcome in the presence of his dad he's impudent he's shameless he doesn't know that he's a viral video he doesn't know that everybody else on the Zoom call is going, what is happening over there at Combs' house? He just is like, I ran out of goldfish. 
I know where the source is. I'm going to go bug dad. Because he knows he belongs there. Jesus taught us to pray, barging in at all hours. Shameless. Do you ever think about God and go, whoa. And I know you do this because you'll be like, yo, dude, bro, I'm struggling. Let's pray. Thou wast heavenly as fatherest. <laughs> Thine will be done and giveth me more money if please. <laughs> No, rather, we're supposed to pray like we know. We're supposed to knock on that door. We're supposed to approach God, not with irreverence, but shamelessly, never feeling anything except God desires to help me. He desires a relationship with me. And then he sums it up and he says, look, so keep asking, keep seeking, and keep knocking. Do you see how that grows in intensity? Asking is verbal. Keep talking. Keep talking to God. Just keep doing it. Oh, and if you view this as, well, God is the place where I get stuff, and I've been trying to manipulate God into giving me what I want for some time, and it's frustrating because he won't do it, well, you're not going to keep asking. But if you say, communication is about getting to know God better, communication is about a love relationship with God, then you desire shamelessly to keep talking to him. So he says, Ask. Then he says, seek. Seek is not verbal. Seek is physical. So we don't only ask God, but we get up and seek it too. So we say, God, would you give me peace? And then we build some good habits that'll help us be more peaceful. We say, God, keep me healthy. And then we drink some water, get some exercise, and go to the doctor. You know what I mean? We seek God's best. And knocking, knocking is eminently relational. Used to be a time when you could knock on your friend's door. I think if somebody knocked, used to be a time a pastor could knock on your door. I think for most of you, if I knocked on your door without telling you I was coming first, you'd call the police. <laughs> Probably rightly so. But this is a culture where you, you go visiting. Hey, I'm here. Aren't you glad? <laughs> Keep knocking shamelessly. Act in such a way that you believe that God desires relationship with you. So he doesn't give me what I want. Did your mom all the time? Did a loving father give you everything you asked for? No, it was the hours on the road missing off ramps that were the really good thing. So praying gives us identity. It, it, it should be shamelessly done. And, and lastly, prayer is about presence. The second story that Jesus tells is a parable from lesser to greater. I love this. He tells a story about, hey, so, you know, a dad won't give, if a kid asks for an egg, you won't give him a scorpion. You're like, true, true. I think that I'm with you so far, Jesus. And then Jesus goes, so you know how you guys are evil? <laughs> you go, yes. Yeah, <laughs> I do know that. I do know that my heart is pretty selfish. And he goes, and even evil you knows how to give good gifts to your kids. What's going on with that one? You know, Matthew's version of that story is, that we might be a little more familiar with, the end of that 
says that God knows how to give good things to those who ask him. And that's true. But Luke is a little more specific in such a profound way. Luke says um, that God know how much more will God give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Do you see how relational prayer is intended to be? What is God's guarantee? It is himself. It's the nearness of the kingdom. Paul would describe our relationship with the Holy Spirit as indwelling and baptized. Indwelling, all up in you, baptized, all around you. And God does not withhold himself, but rather, if even evil, dumb us know how to give our kids good things, how much more does the presence of God, is the presence of God readily available to you? That's not to say that God won't provide material things, but it is that God is not a vending machine. He is a father. And fathers provide stuff, but the stuff is never the most important thing they provide. Parents provide lots of stuff, stuff for their kids, and sometimes kids are mad because the requests aren't answered. But when you look back on your time with your parents, if you had loving, providing parents, and it's Mother's Day, so let's particularly look at your relationship with your mom, if you have a loving, you know, faithful, loving mom. It wasn't the stuff that mattered. It was their presence. It was that they are with you. Your kids don't care if you're rich or poor. They care if you're there. They want to know, do you love me? Do you care what I think? Will you sit with me and let me ramble about something that doesn't matter to anyone else in the whole world? It's not about how much. It's not about you being the proper vending machine. It's about your presence, isn't it? The king of the universe is available to have a relationship like that with you. So God will provide things. Prayers get answered all the time and he'll provide stuff and healing and all kinds of other good things. But there will also be tough times that we don't understand and, and we might have to go without. And Jesus said in this world there'd be trouble and Jesus himself had unanswered prayers. Jesus prayed, God, do I really have to do this? And God said, yes. There might be difficult days, but what you will have is the presence of God. Prayer must not be about bending God's will to yours, but prayer must be the means of relationship with the divine. Think about the opposite, and I'll wrap up here. Think about the opposite. Think about if there was a God who gave you everything you ask for except relationship. Think about if, you, if, if there were parents like that, that never talked to you, never saw you, never hung out with you, and just, you just sent texts and whatever you wanted, you know, showed up on the next door or sh showed up the next day at the front door. Would you feel loved? That'd be fun for about one day. And then you'd go, I'm not sure stuff is what I really want. I think what I want is a relationship. Man, can I tell you that's true with God too? Stuff isn't what you want. It's a relationship with Him. And that is available. 
It is God himself that we want. And it is in his presence where all of that provision makes sense. As we walk with God and as we learn to communicate with him as his beloved children, we will look back on our lives and sing the goodness of God. All my life, you've been faithful. That will be your testimony. If what you're pursuing is not God is vending machine, but God is Father. So, what is your prayer life? It defines your identity as God's child. It's done without shame or fear. And it is all about the presence of God. I guess the question is, is that what you want? Is that what you want out of prayer? Then let's be people of prayer.